So tonight I'd like to start with offering you very one very succinct and very clear piece of advice from the Buddha. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Did you get it? <laughs> it's pretty easy to understand. It's pretty clear, pretty straightforward, not complicated, not so easy to put into practice, is it? <laughs> we have such a lifetime of conditioning that's contrary to that. That's very much about clinging to experience as I, as mine. That sense of self that's so important in our culture to individuate and have a good, clear, strong sense of self. And it's true. On a certain level, it is really important. So good job. <laughs> Sometimes I think that we actually do need to have a fairly healthy sense of ourselves or healthy sort of ego in order to come to this practice and start to so deeply let go of that sense of I and mine. But maybe letting go isn't even really quite the right way to put it. Because there's not really a self there to let go of. It's more seeing clearly, seeing through that delusion, that confusion, that illusion of self. So even though it may not be possible yet to not cling to anything as I or mine, we can, and I believe we are, practicing training in recognizing when we do that, in starting to see that illusion of self that we create. And this is really important. It's no small thing. There's quite a lot of power in that recognition that we're creating that sense of self, of ownership. The power that I see in it, and I'm sure the power that you have tasted, have experienced through your practice, is that possibility of relaxing the grip of I, or in a way, loosening the energetic contraction of self of what ends up feeling like self. 
what we think of as self. So sometimes in my practice, I've actually uh, really chosen to just look at all of those moments when this is happening, when identification with experience is being seen. And uh, the mental note that I like to use for that is selfing. Oh, selfing, selfing. Oh, there it is again, selfing. It's interesting. It's an interesting way to practice. And I think one of the byproducts of this process of selfing is that we create a dualistic universe. So there's this duality of self and not self, self and other, or us and them, or even the idea of one who is seeking freedom, and then that ever-elusive thing, freedom, somewhere separate from ourself. So tonight, I just want to look at, uh, just to remind you of the ways, some of the ways and the places that we do this, that we identify with experience and create this sense of self. The most obvious, the most tangible, on the material level is the body, my body, (laughs) your body. This form that we take on this planet, it's very hard not to take that personally. (laughs) It really feels like who we are. And we're taught, you know, from early on you know, to recognize the body parts as, you know, my hand, my head, my nose. You know, those games we play with babies. And it's not hard. It's hard not. It's hard not to take it personally, especially when it's painful, when we're suffering in some way in our bodies, when there's contraction or soreness or illness, when they're not working so smoothly. Again, there's this sense of like, wait a minute, that's not how it's supposed to be. And, you know, that hurts. That's my knee and it hurts. It shouldn't be. So there's a few different things to mention with body. One of the things that uh, we identify with is appearance in a pretty significant way in this culture. You know, we're supposed to be however it is for you. You know, and it often uh, we're aware of this in seeing all the 
the ways that we're dissatisfied with our bodies. You know, to this, to that, not enough this, not enough that. You can fill in the blanks. I've found so far that the experience of aging is actually quite a gift in this regard, in this particular area around appearance. So, so far, what I've found is it's, you know, (laughs) it's out of my control. (laughs) And I've chosen not to do battle with it. Because really, as far as I can tell, it's a losing battle. (laughs) So why battle? You know, so I've chosen to try the route of graceful letting go into the aging process. And I've noticed that it's a lot easier so far to let go (laughs) of this surface level around appearance and how the body should look than it is around how the body should function. It's quite a bit harder for me. I have more identification with uh, being able-bodied, being fit, you know, being able to shovel my own snow, being able to swim across the lake in the summer, things like that. And, you know, occasionally (laughs) I have started to have experiences where the body doesn't allow me to do that. And there's a little resistance. It's not quite, I'm not as experienced with it yet. So I hope to uh, practice my graceful aging there as well. We'll see. Just recently, uh, in the past week, a a family member uh, had a minor stroke. This is uh, someone in their early 70s. And it turned out well, actually. Uh, She came through it without uh, really losing uh, function, speech, all of that returned. Um, But she's someone who has been very uh, health conscious. And, you know, she's very fit for her age and active and, you know, does all the right things. So along with having the pain and discomfort and major disorientation of having a stroke and ending up in the hospital for several days, her mind really had trouble, as any of ours might, accepting this. And she, she really felt that it wasn't right, Some, you know, that she had done everything right. And now this had happened. Why did this happen to her? It didn't make sense. And it's just an example of how we identify with certain aspects of the body, like well-being. And then when that changes, as it will, as it does, if we're really holding tightly to it, 
it's going to increase our suffering. So there can be identification with being fit, being strong, or maybe the opposite. Maybe that hasn't been your experience in this life. Maybe there's weakness in the system or chronic illness, maybe a lot of pain. And identification can happen there as well, and frequently does. It's still my body. So then we become the one who is fill in the blank, chronically ill, the one who is always in pain. It seems so real, this body. It is on a certain level, but it seems so clearly to be who I am. Because it's so tangible, you know? And it's, you know, it's what we wake up with every morning, (laughs) what we see in the mirror. So isn't that who we are? But I think on a certain level, because of that tangible, that material form of the body, it's also, in a way, an easier place to start to see how we identify, how we create the sense of self. So as you know, the body is considered to be the first foundation of mindfulness. We train there in being mindful because it's knowable, it's tangible. We can actually tune in and experience it, not theoretically, but waking up, being present to that changing flow of sensations that we call back or neck or belly. We start to feel into that, the difference between the concept and the reality of the experience. We start to feel the aliveness of that flow of energy, the aliveness of that changing nature of what we think of as fixed when we're just seeing the surface. Here are a few more words from the Buddha. It is better to live a single day seeing the momentary rise and fall of phenomena than to live a hundred years without seeing this. Better to live a single day really in touch with impermanence, with that change, that flow that we mistake for something solid, something fixed. And I'm sure that you have had experiences of that in your practice. 
It's kind of amazing when we're really there with that energetic change, that flow, when we've dropped beneath the surface appearance the names that we have into that flow. At times, the body, the very outlines of the body, can start to seem less solid, less fixed. When we're really in touch inwardly with the experience of simply sitting here in this moment, hearing. There's a way that that process, that entering into our experience, really through paying attention, through being mindful, that we're tuning into, we're opening to being, the process of being, rather than becoming, which we're so often locked into with our thoughts, our beliefs about things, even our own bodies. I remember walking once during a long retreat, just doing walking meditation outdoors, and just, you know, very simple, but really being there with it in this particular period. Just that flow of sensations that we call walking, that from the outside looks like walking, (laughs) is walking. Just being deeply in that changing flow, and then suddenly the concept, the idea of gender came to mind. It was like, gender? Man, woman? It was so much a concept in that moment. I couldn't feel woman, what that meant in my experience. There was just pressure and movement and vibration and heat and coolness. And where was woman? It was kind of freeing. But of course, identification does return. We cling to some piece of our experience, some aspect of it, or we resist some aspect of experience. Can we see that? So the body's easy to identify with, and perhaps one of the easier areas to let go of that identification, or at least to begin to see the ways that we do identify, the ways that we do create a sense of self. Because it's so clear that we can't control it. And then the rest of the ways that we create a sense of self are all mind-made. 
So there's this material, physical realm of the body, and then there's all the rest. What about thoughts? I was thinking about Descartes, you know, saying, I think, therefore I am. And thinking, well, yeah, on a, you know, on an ultimate level, he was wrong. (laughs) On another level, (laughs) in a way, it's kind of right, because it's sort of like with our thoughts, we create the self. We create the sense of self, the illusion of self. There was a time, again, from my own experience on retreat where I just was really noticing thoughts. And what I saw was shocking. It was so uh, disturbing. (laughs) I remember going into my next interview and saying to whoever it was, every single thought is self-referenced. In some way, it seemed that all of my thoughts were self-referenced. It was really kind of humbling. It's amazing, really, when you look at the process of thinking, at the actual experience of a thought. What is a thought? Some words, maybe some images flashing through the mind, quick, insubstantial, ephemeral, when we look at them, and totally out of our control. (laughs) And this is who we think we are? It's interesting. that something so fickle can also be so compelling. So there's thoughts that are self-referenced, thoughts that are about who we think we are, about ourselves. I happen to uh, really enjoy movies going to the movies. It's just something I've always loved. And it's kind of like that. When you watch your mind, what's going on, there's, a, there's a, often some movie running, and we're starring in it. Only the problem is we haven't really decided to go to that movie. <laughs> it's like I haven't read that review. <laughs> and decided that that would be a movie worth my time, you know, that I want to go spend my money on. (laughs) It's just running in there, and I'm starring in it. And it's so believable. It's so compelling. So, you know, check it out, you know, maybe from that perspective of like, what's the movie today? Maybe it's a romance. And those are kind of fun, (laughs) although they can get kind of tragic. (laughs) Maybe it's another kind of tragedy or drama. Maybe it's a comedy. The comedy can be useful on a retreat. (laughs) 
and sort of lighten the mood. So yeah, just see which one's playing for you in any given moment. Or how many different movies in the mind are there in a day? Not to mention a week or a month or a year. It's amazing. It's a busy theater. (laughs) So there's the thoughts in which we star. And then all the rest of them, even if they're not uh, starring ourself, we have this sense that these thoughts are being had by me. I'm having these thoughts. And it's particularly, it gets a grip on us if we have recurrent patterns of thoughts. So maybe, you know, as we start to pay attention to what's going on in the mind, we see that there are particular thoughts that run frequently. Maybe they're angry thoughts or judgmental thoughts or confused thoughts. Or maybe they're very clear and they're thoughts about clarity. If they come often, you know, like 50, 100, 500 times in a day, (laughs) it's kind of, you know, tempting. It surely must say something about who we are. It must refer back to me that I have all of these thoughts on a regular basis. Whoa, I am a judgmental person. Or I am terribly confused. It's hard, you know? So can you see that moment where that sense of identity gets built? Out of the recognition that there are these recurrent patterns arising in the mind, these thoughts. So, you, you know, it, it's really helpful to recognize those recurrent patterns, to start to see them clearly, not necessarily figuring them out, like, why do I have that same judgmental thought or, you know, that tendency to judge? Why is that there? Where did that come from? That's not so useful. But just recognizing over and over and over and over, judging. Oh, look, judging. Oh, judging the judging. (laughs) Judging the judger. It just goes on. And as we practice that recognition, something starts to shift. You know, we really do start to see it more clearly for what it is. A conditioned pattern arising in the mind. Insubstantial, ephemeral, repetitive, (laughs) but not I and not mine. 
Joseph Goldstein has a lovely way of framing this. He says, thoughts themselves are the thinker. There is nothing behind them. Thoughts themselves are the thinker. We have the thought. We have the thought about it being my thought. Something's wrong with me that I have this thought. There's really nothing there. So that's how we think ourselves into existence, believing that there's someone behind them, someone having them. So being less tangible, less uh, material than the body, they can be harder to see clearly. It takes practice. So to investigate thought, I don't recommend doing it like at the end of the day if your energy's flagging or if you know your cycles of the day and your low energy at three in the afternoon. It takes some clarity of mind to really look, to really see a thought as a thought. And then there are emotions. I don't know about you, but to me, emotions seem even more um, sticky. They're less defined in a way than a thought. They're more complex and pervasive. And they color different aspects of our experience. It's helpful to tune in when we're aware that an emotion is present to the tangible, the material realm of the body. And just see if you can feel what the body feels when that emotion is present. When we don't see some emotion, some mood, some attitude in the mind, they color our experience. It's like uh, colored glasses that we're looking through. But we don't realize we have them on. So some days it's the rose-colored glasses and everything's quite lovely. And some days it's, you know, the sort of gray dukkha glasses. (laughs) And things are flat and drab, and our thoughts kind of follow along in that regard if we don't see that that's what's happening. So identifying with emotions, either the negative, which we tend to do uh, pretty frequently in this culture, or the positive, either way. It feeds into that delusion of self. Anger, 
or contentment? Is it mine? Happiness, sadness, joy or despair, love or hate. Is this who I am? It's so easy to personalize it. I'm happy, I'm sad. It is me having this feeling. This is how I feel. And then we become a happy or sad person. You know, we add some time frame onto it. The past, the future. I've always been kind of sad. Or, you know, I used to be a happy person. Rather than really paying attention to what's happening right now and seeing it clearly and seeing if there's identification happening. So again, with practice, we learn to do this. It becomes uh, more familiar to start to recognize emotions when they're present. We get more experienced. And maybe we can stop adding the future to them. I know I learned that on a whole new level, sort of as a survival technique on some retreat. Can't even remember what the emotion was I was feeling, but it had the quality of unbearableness. And I couldn't imagine continuing for, you know, two and a half more months or whatever it was. And I, it was really like, I felt like I just, I was going to explode <laughs> or die or cry or run or something. And so I kind of saw, oh my gosh, you know, I can, okay, right now, just right now, I can do this one moment. I can be with this feeling right now. It was a good thing to learn. I wouldn't wish it on you, that desperation <laughs> in your practice, but it was really a helpful thing to learn to see how we add the future. And it becomes unbearable, or at least it's not doable because it's not here. It's a thought. We also see when we pay attention to something like emotions that they have a beginning. They have an end. And maybe they have triggers. Maybe we see that we have some thought, some memory, and then we're flooded with an emotion about that. So interesting. Wow, (laughs) how did that happen? If you look at it from that perspective of like a scientist, like, whoa. Check this out. How does this happen? It's helpful. So can we let it all come with the intention of seeing it clearly, let it go, and 
practice seeing more and more where that selfing comes in. And sometimes when we see the selfing happen, for myself, (laughs) so to speak, when I see it happen, it's useful to, again, kind of feel or tune into the energetic sense in the body. Because sometimes that selfing feels just like some kind of contraction of energy. And when I feel it, and really feel it clearly, sometimes I can just relax it again. And the storyline of self sort of loosens as well. So when we are identified with emotions, when we're grasping, again, it's that dualistic universe where love is possessive love, attached love, that can so easily flip to hate, to hating our experience. They're all just emotions, coming, going, and we can and do and are learning to loosen that sense of self around them. And this provides a much greater ease. So with anything, it's useful to remember you just start where you are. You start with whatever experience is arising. Maybe you notice you're really locked up. There's a strong sense of self. Good, you're noticing that. What's that like? How is it known? How is it felt? In just that uh, willingness to be mindful of that state, The mindfulness itself has the quality of creating space, of bringing space into the experience. So just to touch on a few other areas of identification. Our roles in life. This is an interesting one. Maybe family status. So, parent, child, sibling, spouse, caretaker. How is it to be identified with these roles? Or in our practice, good practitioner. Bad practitioner. (laughs) Good person. Spiritual person. Fine. Great aspiration. But if you're identified, (laughs) could be painful. (laughs) Some of you know that uh, some years ago I fell in love with and then later married someone who had two children, has two children, who at the time were 11 and 14. So 
when we got together, I got to live with them uh, through the teenage years. Uh, one of them half-time and then one of them full-time with us. And one of them had a pretty easy uh, transition into adulthood and one had a pretty challenging transition. And although when I first got involved, I was really fortunate, I felt, to um, have a pretty easy time of it, like the kids liked me and I liked them, and so that really helped a lot. <laughs> and then I knew that to be true even when later in the difficult years, uh, one of them, you know, did a fair amount of scapegoating, and suddenly, you know, I was in his mind, a pretty significant part of his problem. <laughs> and I remember just, you know, in one day, sort of saying to my husband, this so does not fit my idea of myself. <laughs> I said, I'm the good stepmother. <laughs> I mean, I really got to see, you know, that this was what I was identified with. And I did say it with some consciousness, with some awareness that that was how I was seeing myself. And if I held on to it too tightly, I was going to suffer. And it, it really, really helped to see it clearly. It helped to loosen that identification so I could just be present, be open, be kind, have boundaries, you know, do what needed to be done, but without the reactivity of, no, you're wrong, I'm the good stepmother, you've got it all wrong. You know, not taking it personally is huge. I'm sure any of you who are parents <laughs> know this one. I don't think you can survive without knowing it. I came to it late in life. <laughs> I was thinking about how uh, so often we have this yearning to be authentic in our lives, this deep yearning for authenticity. What does that mean? Authentically what? I think at first maybe there is this sense that it's authentically something, but we haven't figured it out yet. And then over time, you know, we see that it's not another role. It's a way of being. Being open being present, being aligned with our experience, whatever that is. So roles, I was also thinking about ownership, you know, our stuff. And so when I was at home sitting in my house, <laughs> I could see, you know, the ways that I get identified there. You know, I like my house to be a certain way, orderly and spacious. 
well, forget that if you've got kids at home. <laughs> but I don't anymore, so I think I have more control. But it's interesting just seeing the different ways we can identify or have that sense of ownership. My job. That's a big one. It's important. We need to support ourselves. But is it who I am? Is it myself? Does it define me? It's interesting. For years, I've done the bookkeeping down the hill for the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies since we bought the property. And uh, anyway, so, you know, I... I've been a bookkeeper. And then, you know, for some years I've done some teaching, you know, meditation, and so I've been a meditation teacher. (laughs) And when people ask me what I do, I think, hmm, which one shall I tell them? And at first I could see in the early years of teaching that it kind of felt better to say I, I taught, although I felt very, very little confidence in myself. It just seemed like a nicer thing to say, like more important And then I kind of got lazy, and I realized it was so easy to just say bookkeeper. (laughs) Because you didn't have to explain meditation and go through all of that. So anyway, it's very flexible for me. (laughs) It changes all the time. Anyway, as I was sitting sitting there in my house, in my living room the other day, thinking about this topic, thinking about ownership, I thought, my car? Do I relate to my car in that way? Is it like my car? And then I thought... Oh, glad I thought of the car because I've been meaning to go out there and see if I can scrape that paint off the bumper because somebody hit my car in a parking lot and it left this big thing of paint on the bumper and it kind of looks like I'm the kind of person who drives around and hits people (laughs) because I've got this smear of paint on my bumper. And it looks like it might just scrape off with one of those plastic pot scrapers. So I got right out of my chair and I went outside with the scraper and it didn't scrape off. But I just want you all to know, I did not hit someone. (laughs) So yeah, I don't really relate to my car. (laughs) Part of the problem, part of the... um, picture of this creation of self is in perception. That mostly we settle for the surface appearance of things. You know, you're you, I'm me, that's clear. Susan sitting there, you know, there's a rock behind her, a Buddha on top. That's clear. When we tune in through our practice on a deeper level and experience seeing, what's that like? And then there's the naming of things. It's a little bit different. And mindfulness has this power where it can take us underneath that surface recognition, or perhaps a better way to say it is into the experience 
and then we're not separate. It's very alive, vibrant, essenceful. You know, if you really look even at a rock, it has quite a bit more going on than we take at surface glance. I remember an experience of this that was really strong for me on my first three-month retreat next door, walking around the loop, the three-mile loop. And there are some beautiful big old trees on the back side of the loop. And at a certain, on one particular day, just, I always kind of noticed the trees because I like trees, but I just kind of saw them in a different way. And you know, the words just don't do it. I'm sure you've, or I'm fairly sure you've experienced this in your practice, that fullness of presence and just seeing. And particularly with nature, something so vibrant, so alive, there's a very strong quality of connection. This is a little poem that a friend shared with me, and he didn't tell me who wrote it. I don't know if he knew. It's called Lost. I think it describes this nicely. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful presence, must ask permission to know it, and be known. The forest speaks. Listen. It answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may return, saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, then you are truly lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are, and you must let it find you. So sometimes we drop into that place in practice, into that deeper knowing, that deeper awareness underneath the names of things. But guess what? (laughs) It's even possible to identify with that. That's who I am. I tasted it. I got there for a second. Why can't I get back? (laughs) (laughs) Awareness is aware. Awareness is no more self than this body, these thoughts, these emotions. Check it out for yourself. Don't take my word for it. You might see that when there's less identification, that sense of duality drops away. And maybe you'll feel that you arrive more and more 
in states of being rather than becoming, like peace, openness, receptivity, connectedness to the whole, responsiveness to life. I'd like to close with short passage from a Zen teacher named Charlotte Joko Beck. So the secret of life that we are all looking for is just this, to develop through sitting and daily life practice the power and courage to return to that which we have spent a lifetime hiding from, to rest in the bodily experience of the present moment. Even if it is a feeling of being humiliated, of failing, of abandonment, of unfairness, we learn to rest in our experience without thought, to sink into a non-dual state even if we can stay only a few seconds at first. With time and development, we can learn to rest there for long periods of time. As we rest in this non-duality, we leave behind the phenomenal world of problems and dualistic solutions. We start with including and clarifying our psychological world but we end in a transformation that cannot be really described in words. We can only suggest a way of living that is free, compassionate, functional. And in this way, our so-called problems can be dealt with in a more open and a more compassionate manner. Let's sit quietly for a couple minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.